0: Hey team, welcome back and welcome to episode 31 of Transition Talk where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. As we have said, there are some universal rules to transitions and we hope you've gained some tools about those topics listening to us over the last year or so. But there are some very unique factors of any transition with various specialties. In episode 26, we talked about ortho, 28, we talked about pedo, And today, we are going to talk about the wonderful world of endodontics.
1: Root canals. Exciting. Root canals.
0: Once again, there's no one rule and formula. And today, you'll hear a really wide range of valuations and transition timelines and workbacks and that's very true as we kind of start getting into these specialties, especially some of the ones that are more unique and smaller. Again, we're going to go always go back to, do you like it? Do you love it? Does it fit what you want? And if you can say yes to those areas, then we can move on to figuring out how to support that decision and how to make it work. But before we get there, Mr. Loretto. What's going not, on? Not much. I so I thought with this common theme of specialties, we'd talk about, do you have a specialty?
1: Well, yes, I do. <laughs> From a specialty. T standpoint, well, I got to think that speaking on transitions is one, but since that's the obvious, yes,
0: let's move on to the more hidden, yes,
1: hidden gym. So as I, as we were kind of prepping on this, I was trying to think, what am I good at? And and I guess it's my hot sauce is pretty dang good because every time I go to a party, it's like I get that request to make that hot sauce.
0: I know. And now I'm really kind of a little bummed and kind of sad that I've never experienced this hot sauce. I
1: will. Relationship really isn't
0: where it needs to be. I'll
1: commit to bringing the hot sauce up to the office. But I worked in Mexican restaurants growing up, high school and in college. And so I just, I worked with my Latino brothers. And I got to see how the best hot sauces are made, and so the, obviously the spicier the better. But it's a combination of a little bit of the poblano pepper. Mm. Uh, it's the tomatillo. Okay, it's the romas. You got to boil all this with the regular jalapeno. Then we've got to do a little bit of serrano, a little bit of the onion, and it has to be boiled just right. You got to like drain it just right. A little salt, a little hidden gem, a little sugar in there to take sugar. that. Yes. Have to take that spice, you know, right out. Of there and a little bit of fresh lime juice, all blended in the Vitamix. Vitamix. I love my Vitamix. But pretty much once, Roxanne got a hold of this hot sauce. She loves the chips and hot sauce more than anything. It goes neck and neck with chips and salsa and wine. She loves the wine. (laughs) So I'm pretty certain that I've got a long-lasting marriage as long as I can just love on her, provide the hot sauce, and keep the wine cooler full. Keep the wine
0: going. (laughs) Yeah, that's, Love it. That
1: is my specialty. I, I'm okay in the guac, too, but I think guac is kind of easy to replicate. You can just put a couple little things. Avocados are just the best. They are.
0: Know? They really are.
1: I, I need to hear about <laughs> your specialty. What is the Ratcliffe specialty?
0: Well, so I have food perspective. So I come from a very southern church cookbook type of family. Right. So I've got a few casseroles in my repertoire. that ragger, are. Ragger. Are really good. I mean, but like, it's not like I'm cooking from scratch. I mean, there's a lot of like condensed canned stuff oh, in it, you know?
1: Oh. You're losing fans as we, I know, as you speak. know, I am,
0: I am. But I'm a foodie, but there's nothing like a good chicken spaghetti casserole, which happens to be my kid's favorite. And so that's from a food perspective. I would say the other specialty that unfood related is I'm a lyric master. Nice. I cannot tell you who sings a song, but I can tell you the lyrics. Like, song comes on, we'll remember all lyrics, all jingles of commercials, and I pass it on to my daughter. And so we sing a lot. I actually had a boyfriend in high school who his friend said, I don't know how you can date her. She sings all the time. (laughs) In, in, in the car, so if you don't like someone who sings along, that We've definitely... we
1: never gone on a road trip, but we're always just on a plane trip, so uh, let's try our next plane trip where we're sitting next to each other that you can just bust out your lyrics, bust you Bust know? out with my early 2000
0: rap. <laughs> so, now that we know a little bit more about each other, let's move on to the topic of today, endodontic transitions, You know, I think these are, they happen less frequently. It is something where I think it's unique, even in the specialties. But I think what makes these different from your standard kind of GP transition is that, yes, we're always focused on profitability, and we'll talk about that in a second. But it's the overall transition plan, and it's the risk of not transferring over the relationships. And when I say relationships, I mean referral relationships well. Like, what is the plan to transfer those relationships? Because if you have a super profitable practice, I'm not as willing to pay as much for it if there's not another set of factors that show me why those relationships are going to come to you as a new buyer. Right, Right, right. So we'll spend a lot of time, you'll hear us talk about relationship and referrals and the transfer of those the entire episode. But talk to me, give me your perspective on that. And I know you have a couple of theses.
1: Yeah. So just remember going back to like our orthopedo and GPs, the ones that have the highest success because you've people in treatment. But when we're going to the straight referral base, business definitely go back to talk a little bit about this on our closing time episode, just the importance of those referral relationships. If it's the Fab Four, or the Great Six, or the Unique Eight, whatever those groups are, you're typically seeing that in our endo practices where a lot of these big GP practices will refer. To me, it's just really important to see what those referral patterns are and just really important to make sure that if we're going to purchase this, I've got to feel really good about it, and I've got to ask a lot of questions, which I know that we do, and we're helping our endos purchase. And we've had a couple this year alone, so I know we've got some stories we'll share a little bit here in a second.
0: Yeah, and I also think that the competition here, right? So I'm not as concerned if those relationships aren't going to transfer over if I'm the only endo in town, right? If there's no one else to refer to, I'm not as concerned. Clearly, I still want to focus on that. I want to understand how that's going to happen. I want to have a plan for that. I'm not worried they're going to start doing their own root canals similarly and you brought this up and I thought it was a great point I can also be in a very urban area where there's tons of endo but mm-hmm. there's none in my building right mm-hmm. we had a Seattle practice give me yeah. a high level of that one
1: so you've got some of these major metro cities like a, a downtown Seattle or maybe a New York or a Chicago or something like that where you've got this setup where there are literally 50 to 60 dentists in one building. And then you've got maybe one endodontist, or maybe it's two endodontists in that practice, and maybe one of them is older, and he or she's only working one or two days a week, and then there's this other kind of go-to, and it's a he or she, and you know she's just cranking out, it's a four-day-a-week, she does a really good job, and financially, you know, he or she's set, and we're just going to bring somebody in. I feel really good about that relationship. I mean, this is just the patients there, it's hard enough for parking, it's hard enough to their traffic, maybe in Seattle, New York, or Chicago, they're Mm -hmm. there, they need the referral over, they just make that call, set everything up, and get over there, literally one four over, and get that root canal done. I've got examples of, it's a community or town of 100,000 or 150,000, again, they're the only in the or I can think of another, uh, of a period practice that's like that, they're crushing it. absolutely crushing. There's zero marketing involved. There's nothing. It's just because you're the only basically game in town. So when you're in that situation, it just mitigates a lot of this risk. And I think that there's so many things that come to mind is one, you can look at that as a rural area from like Mississippi or a state like New Mexico or a state like West Virginia, places that are just, they don't have a big population to dentist ratio, much less specialists much less endodontic, you have to look at those and just to be able to figure out what risks that we're talking about in that transition. And so it's kind of cool to see where there's times that you're going to pay 100% and there's times that you may say, look, we're going to value the practice before, we're going to pay a lot less and this is why, regardless of these overheads.
0: Yep, absolutely. And then another unique thing about these transitions is the space, Mm -hmm. right? They can oftentimes do more in a smaller kind of footprint of an area. So I think you gave some, you know, 1,200 square feet and three ops, and maybe our technology is great, but it's not, you know, finish out. We're not putting tons of pictures on our website. Cause we're super proud of our finish out.
1: Yeah, when I think about space for endo, I, I really don't care where it is. It could be in the back corner. Kind of the trend today is you'll see this multi-specialty type complex where somebody, two or three people. Typically, the ones that make the most money will carve out some two-acre lot on the corner of X and Y, and they'll have the, typically you want to see like a GP office and maybe ortho office or something basically on the corner of X and Y, because that's the two that really want to brand and market to the thousands of cars that are passing by. I really don't care what that endo is, and I really don't need you to try to figure out how you're going to own your space and you know build equity in that. You could have a freaking $10 a foot 1,200 square foot, $1,000 rent payment on your indo space, I'm totally cool with that because in the end, no one's like driving around going, hey, cool, that's where the endodontist is. Nobody no one, has any yeah. idea what a root canal is and how <laughs> to look one up one. <laughs> until you need one, until the general dentist explains that this is what you're going to need. And so space to me is really not that important unless that happens to be that unique space that's inside of this call it 50 GPs inside of the one building, I'm willing to pay a lot more for that type of deal because it's really locking in my referral base for many years to come.
0: Yeah, and I think that's something that buyers struggle with because they want the pretty office and they want it to look and they're worried about that, but I think if you focus on this person has built this business with this profitability in this space and yep. kind of just like mentally getting over that hurdle that you need to own your space or you want it to have the best finish out, like you're doing it for you if you want it, fine. Right, right. But no, you're doing it for you not because you have to have it to kind of keep the patience.
1: So it makes me think about Roxanne. She's had migraines forever. It's tough. Mm-hmm. I can't relate to people that have migraines because no. I've had them and I see it just like brings them it's down and it makes convenient. me sad. But also, I just can't relate. So I don't know how sad I am because I don't even know what kind of pain they're in, (laughs) you know. (laughs) So I'm like, just take an aspirin or something. I don't know. Just get get over it. Suck it up. (laughs) But I know it's like it's severe. So she found this one specialist here. And he's like super old. And, you know, secretary, like does everything. There's books. It's kind of like kind of messy everywhere. But he totally diagnosed her. And after going to all these other specialists, you know, he went cheap, a little real estate or whatever. He's got to line out the door. Yep. He has a line out the door for that specialty type patient. So again, it's just not, it's not needed.
0: Yep, absolutely. Another thing that I think is unique about, and this can actually apply to a couple other specialties I think about, but from an endodontic standpoint, we have people come to us and they say, hey, I'm going enter this partnership. Let's say it's called a, uh, I don't know, Plano Endodontics, right? right? Just, it's this big specialty group and there are three or four endodontists that work under that. I think it's important that you understand like what type of partnership you're getting into, Right. Is it a partnership where they're all at capacity and patients come in and it is literally whomever is open and you get that space? Or is it a partnership where Dr. A, Dr. B, Dr. C all have their own patient base? We're operating as a quote unquote partnership, but we really aren't, right? right? When you come into that partnership, you're going to have to build your own patient base.
1: That drives me crazy.
0: It drives me crazy, but it's also not a partnership, right? Like you're not mitigating any of the risk of the referral transfer of relationships, and you're not mitigating any of that by entering this partnership. It still may be a good deal, right? Like maybe that works for you and that's what you want and you know these people, whatever, right? It may still work, but don't be illusioned that you're mitigating the risk of an endodontic transition by entering this partnership. Now, if it's the previous one, Plano Endodontics or whatever it's called, and you know everyone's at their capacity they're adding you and your schedule's going to be full immediately that's fantastic yes. right and that mitigates a lot of the things we've talked about and that's where you want to be.
1: Yeah, partnership is not, hey, everyone refers to Doctors 1, 2, and 3. And we're going to allow you to participate and work in operatories 18 and 19 down the corner. And we'll allow you to go market to referral group uh, CD&E that have never sent anything to us. And then we'll allow us to maybe value the business down the road and you're going to buy it. That's not a partnership. Partnership is yeah. someone saying, look, here is all the business... That we have when the referrals come in, we're going to push you. We're going to grow you. We're booked out. We want more time off. We can we can't physically do anymore. We make a ton of money here. Here's our financials, and here's a plan how you're going to be a partner in the next one to two years. That to me is is a partnership. It's a built out plan for them, you know, for you. So just make sure that if you are you know a resident, you're in uh, thinking about this, or if you're an established doctor is. We don't want to help you on the transition to, unless you can convince us that you've got more work than what you have and you just you want to help turn this over and your GPs are really upset because it's two, three, four weeks that you're booked out. I mean, that is a clear telltale sign that you are absolutely ready to bring someone in or as the young person coming in, that's exactly what you want to see.
0: Yep, absolutely. And that I think is important and that's kind of a lesson for any partnership, Definitely. right? I mean, I Definitely. think this applies to any specialty, kind of that conversation but clearly, I think if we're looking for a transition opportunity, then we need to understand kind of what we're getting into and what kind of risk we're mitigating. And are you a partnership person or not? Right. Like, I mean, I worked with a buyer who had a great partnership opportunity. It was, he was in no great partnership opportunity was clearly the quote, quote, better offer, but he didn't want to be in a partnership. And so he wanted his own practice. And so he chose to kind of go another route. Again, it was better financially, but not better for him overall. I just think clearly understanding kind of what your goals are. Again, back to kind of, I think, Transition Talk 101, if you've heard us say anything else, like know what your own goals are and explain to us why you want something and we can figure out if the numbers work for you.
1: Yeah, and working with people, it is hard. And you can easily do this on your own. This is definitely a case that I would promote a startup because it's very low cost to get set up. That 1,200 square feet is not expensive to get going. You can probably get a practice set up for $250,000. So it's it's inexpensive. You can always go work for 50% for somebody down the street or around the corner. And so it's easy to kind of get the thing going. So when, when I think about these partnerships, so I like them because the fact that we can share fixed costs and, and we share a call, that's important in Indo because we do get kind of that, mm-hmm. I need some help, bail me yeah. out. So that's super important. I've got a couple of doctors right now that... They all make a million dollars each. They're in a mm-hmm. partnership, but they don't like each other. When they can't physically do anymore, they're doing their six, seven canals. They can't do anymore. They make one million dollars each and they don't like each other and they're trying to get out of their partnership. And now they got real estate involved and they got to figure this out. It's painful. And I'm like, I don't know. There's not a right thing to say. Mm-mm. You know, there's not a right thing to say there. What to do? You're going to have to buy somebody out. Do you just leave? It's complicated. Yeah. So make sure you know who you're getting into to business with. Date before you marry is what I say.
0: Okay. So I think that we would be amiss if we didn't kind of talk about the financials of an endodontic practice. Yep. Clearly those still matter. Profitability still very much matters. I would say that if we look at endodontic practices overall, typically they're going to have one of the lowest, if not the lowest overhead, right? For sure. Because the components that we need staff, we don't need as much staff. We don't have lab supplies are likely lower. And then our rent, right? If we can operate out of a smaller space, our fixed costs are oftentimes lower. So just naturally overhead is lower. The cane waters, how your practice compares booklet, it's a smaller sample, right? And yes. it's a smaller specialty, but their average is around 45%. But I would say, I think that we've seen Twenty I mean, yes. percent. We've seen twenty-five percent. We've seen thirty percent. We've seen fifty-five or sixty percent. Right. So in those areas where maybe they're not utilizing, they got too big of a space. Not utilizing Multiple
1: locations. It. You know. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
0: So I mean I think that the range of overhead can vary dramatically, which oftentimes then leads to the value varying dramatically as well, right? We've had a practice, an indo practice sell for a hundred percent, which seems super crazy for most people that are listening, and we've also had one sell at fifty percent. Right. I think that we have to understand that the profitability still matters it can be super lean and should be super lean right if we're maximizing our space and really like maximizing how many canals we can do a day but the value of the practice and what ultimately a buyer is willing to pay for it is going to be dependent on what we've just talked about which is what is the plan what's the competition how am i going to keep that profitability going If I'm exchanging myself out for you, seller, that's the plan you have to put together.
1: So let me give you an example here. So let's take Mississippi, which is a very difficult state to try to attract a dentist, much less a specialist like an endodontist. And so let's say I've got a dentist and it's not even like in Oxford. It's down Mm -hmm. somewhere in the central area of Mississippi. But it's a $2 million practice. Guy or gal's doing, you know, some eight canal a day. They're charging whatever they want to charge. It's $2 million collection business. 25 percent overhead Mm. okay they make a million five well you know being the valuation analyst if you put in a million five of cash flow that's going to put to a really high valuation so this may shoot up to be some just from a value standpoint just looking at the cash over two million dollars but at the same time you have to look at what are the risk factors of even trying to figure out could this person just see this opportunity and just go right across the street and be extremely successful for $250,000. The answer is yes.
0: Yeah,
1: It's difficult to value these type of practices. And it's almost like just whatever the buyer and seller are going to agree to. Certainly, the million five is attractive. Certainly, the fact that this guy or guy on this particular area is booked out for, I don't know, six weeks Uh, Is going to be attractive we can see the cash flow that we're going to be able to show to this buyer and to the seller. And so we got to figure out how to work something out that's fair for both sides. And then you've got that back to the California. It's always back to California. Mm -hmm. But everyone wants to go there. And if you've got that same $2 million practice and it's a 50% overhead and makes a million dollars and the seller says, hey, I've got a value of a million bucks and you're coming to me as a buyer saying, well, what do you think? I mean, bottom line is you're going to make $800,000 after debt, and this is where you want to be for you and your family. I kind of get it. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm willing to overpay for something again in that beautiful, high-desired area because, you know, again, comes back to where you want to be, so... There's just so many things to think about when you think about some of these specialties, and in this case, even for Hindo, But you obviously want to look at this cash flow and be able to help make some sense of it and figure out what we can do to mitigate some of these risks before we pull the trigger on it.
0: Yep. Another area before we move on to, I think, the risk mitigation, which is oftentimes a seller work back in these 100% sales. So before we go there, I wanted to touch on the marketing expense. I mean, this is by far the lowest marketing expense if there is any marketing expense right. of any specialty. I mean, I think that Canewater's how your practice compares is like 0.85%. Like, right. it's totally minimal because you're not going to have a traditional marketing plan. Again, you probably don't, maybe not even need a website. Like, you literally right. just need to be able to develop those relationships. And so any marketing dollars you spend are probably more lunches, dinners, right. gift cards, turkeys, whatever you're going to do to maintain those
1: relationships. Yeah, you're probably attending the Spear Study Club or Seattle study club, you know, type events Mm -hmm. and with your colleagues in your area, something like that, that you're just putting down, your accountants putting down as a marketing expense. So yeah, it's very, very little. And then all back to the low overhead and that's part of it. Yep.
0: So if we're not talking about a partnership and we're talking about a hundred percent acquisition, I think it's important. And we always get the question of like, well, how long should the seller work back in these types of relationships? I think that we would both agree that cash flows, size, willingness of seller A year plus is ideal, Mm -hmm. right? Ideal that they can be around for a year so long that patients and referrals kind of feel like maybe now you guys are just working together as kind of partners. Like that type of relationship is ideal. It is not a perfect world. Mm -hmm. The practice can be too small Mm -hmm. to support that from a cash flow perspective. The seller can be unwilling to do that, right? I'm ready to retire. I've got a health issue, whatever it might be. I'm just not willing to do that. Then the question is, okay, I get that that's ideal, but then what's next? Like how much is okay? My opinion is somewhere in that three to four month mark, if, Mm -hmm. you know, as long as possible. But if we're saying, okay, you have to be around for this amount of time, I would say three to four months is probably the shortest amount of time that I'd be comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And again, the goal there is that like you spoke about earlier, the fab five, the grade eight, whatever that is, it's developing those relationships. It's introducing to study clubs. It's going to a couple meetings together. It's whatever that needs to do to start, Kind of connecting the new buyer with the new community to make sure that some of those referrals stick.
1: Yeah, it could be a, one of these ginormous practices where it's a $2 million practice and we figure out it's a seven canal day and, and we're asking our buyer, what's the most number of canals you've done in the day? That answer is five. We have a problem. Yep. You know, how long do you need to keep him around as long as, long as, as it takes to, he, get to, to, get, <laughs> to get to seven? <laughs> Yeah. So that's absolutely key there as well. And just to get that systems down. And so then we try to budget. Maybe it's we open the fifth day. So it allows you to, because you're slower to get your speed up and just yeah. have him or her work in that practice. So that's key. And it's at three to four, six months. To me, it's about just the presence. Yeah. So it's not just three I'm months or four months. Yeah. yeah. Let's just budget how much that we need him or her around. Let's think about a strategy. Mm-hmm. Strategy might be is having him or her around, you know, one day a week for 40 weeks. Mm-hmm. Okay. I got 40 days. And then I've got the eight Seattle Study Club meetings that I want us to go together. We're also involved in the spirit, and they do six. Okay, so that's 14 dinners that I want him or her to come with the Minnesota Dental Association or the something where that we're going to be kind of connected together. Everyone's going to kind of know me. I've been doing this for 30 to 40 years or know you for 30 to 40 years. They want to see me as a young guy with them. So I want us to walk the floor for one day, something Mm -hmm. like that. The number of dinners that we might do with our Fab Five, I really want us to think about that strategy and then let's budget that in our transition plan. You know, it's not even about, hey, I'll give you 700 bucks to go to this dinner. It's like, I'll buy you a steak and as much good wine you want, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, in general, especially, it's that, you know, the patient notification letter and kind of more of the transition of staff. But with these, it's really in the legal documents, we can be pretty specific as far as what we're asking for to help transition that goodwill. And all of these go back to what we talked about at the beginning of this episode, which is what are the other factors, right? What is that competition? What is the space? What is the risk? How many referrals are there? Are you from the town and your family's in dentistry too? And so you're not really concerned if you lose a couple of the referrals because you know you have these. I mean, there's a story there that goes along with what you're comfortable with as far as how long the seller stays back. So I think that is really important and goes back to kind of the number one reason of what we think is different about these is there's a story and there's a risk and we have to figure out how we're mitigating that. And, you know, you kind of have to tell us what that story is. So. I can't believe
1: we've talked this long on endodontic transitions.
0: Exciting. It shocks me. It's exciting. I don't even
1: know some of this stuff. I'm just like... <laughs> These stories, they always come out. That's your specialty. It is my specialty.
0: (laughs) Thanks, guys, for joining us today. We'll be back. We're going to continue these specialty episodes. We're going to sprinkle them in with the other topics. If you have something you want to talk about, please let us know. Remember to subscribe to Transition Talk on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. And as always, like us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Have a great week.
1: And if you need that special salsa recipe, send me an email and I'll hook you up. (laughs) See you guys.